Now, if you doubt that foundations are important, uh, take a look at this picture of the 850-year-old, 179-foot leaning tower of Pisa. It's in Italy. Scientists tell us that it moves about a 20th of an inch every year, and that currently it is 17 feet out of plumb. They predict that soon this 179-foot tower, tower, whose foundation, by the way, is only 10 feet deep, that it will have leaned too far and will collapse. Now, the Leaning Tower of Pisa reminds me of another Leaning Tower whose foundation has been compromised for some time. I'm talking about the family, the bedrock of our civilization. The Psalmist David once asked, and I quote, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And so today we will revisit God's foundational idea for the family, as recorded in Genesis uh, chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. I'm told that an atheist happened to have been walking in the woods when he heard a rustling in the bush. And then a seven-foot bear immediately jumped out and started pursuing him. So he ran as fast as he could, but realized that the bear was, in fact, gaining on him. And so tripping and falling to the ground, he rolled over to pick himself up, but the bear was right over him with his paw ready to strike. Oh, God, help, he cried out. A voice answered, you have denied my existence all these years. You've taught others that I didn't exist, and you've credited creation to a cosmic accident. Do you now wish to admit that you are a believer? The atheist replied, I would feel like a hypocrite if I became a Christian after all these years, but perhaps you could make the beer a Christian. <laughs> Very well, said the voice. 
Dropping its right paw, the bear brought both of its paws together, bowed its head and said, Lord, for this food which I'm about to receive, I am truly thankful. <laughs> there is a line of demarcation between the creator and the creature. There is a line of demarcation between the creator and the creature. Man owes his existence to the creator. It is not the other way around. Although we tend to behave as though we are in charge and think that God exists because of us. But the book of beginnings tells us, then God said, let us make man or mankind. Now then, if you look at the context, then means on the sixth day. Then means after God had created everything else, he created man. So man was the last to be created. I believe the reason God did it that way was that man would never be able to take credit for anything that has happened in creation. In fact, in the book of Job, that was written about the same time as the book of Genesis, we hear God ask Job rhetorically, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have any understanding. Where were you? You weren't around. So these verses make it clear that there is a line of demarcation between the creator and the created. Now, my high school principal was a lady named, the, well, she's now the late Mrs. Rosalie Andre. Now, she had the voice that was as deep as a man's. And when she spoke, she spoke with authority. You listened to her when she spoke. I don't know if this line is original to her, but she used it a lot. In fact, I, I still remember it. She would always say, there is a line of demarcation between teachers and students. And what she meant by that was, teachers are in charge, and you had better know your place. Similarly, I think, the creator is the authority, and the creature must know its place. This is what the Apostle Paul said, Romans chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? These verses make it very clear. God is in charge. We are not. So let's look back at our text. God, the creator, created mankind. He created male and he created female. He created them in his image, which means that he made them like himself. God did not make them carbon copies of himself. He made them similar to himself in appearance as well as function. But he did not make them equal to himself. God decided to give them agency or the freedom to choose. Some people call that free will. He also gave them regency or the freedom to function as managers or rulers over creation. 
This is what God said, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, there's a whole theology of planet care. Some people call it environmental justice. This message is not about that. We are not going into that. The point I'm making is simply this. God is the creator. Men and women are merely creatures. God created us to be creative like him. He created us to be responsible like him. He made us to work as he worked, whether to earn our livelihoods or to help him manage the rest of creation. I believe that that means that for every space that we occupy or for everything that has been entrusted to us, we have the responsibility to make it better than it was when it was given to us. God made us the custodians of his creation, but he is God and we are not. And so John Piper says, we are not God. So by comparison to ultimate absolute reality, we are not much. Our existence is secondary and dependent on the absolute reality of God. He is the only given in the universe. Now, there has always been a boundary between the creator and us, the creatures. But that doesn't mean that we as creatures have not always tried to cross that boundary. In fact, 11 chapters into the book of Genesis, we see men attempting to become God themselves. We hear their arrogant boast as they inspire one another to defy God's authority and to become whomever they did to be. And so in Genesis chapter 11, verses 3 to 4, they say this to themselves. Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. But I believe that for every move that we make, God has a counter move. He always has a counter move. And in the following verse, we see this counter move that God makes, a counter move of his own. In chapter 11, verses 7 to 9, God responds to them, to their folly, by saying this. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. Now, I believe that you will agree with me on this point. If you haven't agreed with me before, and I believe that you have, but I think you'll also agree with me on this point. The world has become a very noisy place. There's a lot of noise in the world. There are all kinds of postmodern philosophies in the world. All kinds of theories and ideologies. They have all raised their voice in defiance against the authority of God. And I wonder whether this isn't as a result of God confusing our language 
so that we don't even know what we are saying and we don't even know what we are believing to be true. And so evolution claims that God didn't create the world, but that everything evolved from a big bang. Self-determination claims that we can decide our own destiny independent of God. Pluralism claims that we can believe whatever we want to believe. Critical race theory complicates our already complicated history on race. There is a lot of noise in the world. And the Bible says that because people refuse to believe the truth, God will send them a strong delusion that they will have to believe the lie. So that's what's happening in our world. There is a noisy lie out there that many are believing rather than responding to the quiet truth about God. But there is a line of demarcation between the creator and the creature. That is the absolute truth. Secondly, there is a blessing in the distinction between male and female. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. Now, God blessed men and women in their maleness and in their femaleness. God blessed them in their gender-specific identities. God blessed them as male, and he blessed them as female. Now, that is an extremely important theological and biological reality. I don't want you to miss this. God blessed them as he had made them, not as they would later choose to make themselves. Can I say that again? God blessed them as he had made them, but he did not bless them as they would choose to make themselves. Now, I know that I'm stepping into very tricky territory right here, but I will say it anyway. God made them male and female, and he blessed them as he created them. Amen, indeed. Now, this has become the biggest cultural argument out there. We've developed fancy terminology, such as gender dysphoria, gender non-conforming, and gender transitioning. Now, these terms, in case you haven't realized, they are in every new cycle. Now, this started off as being maybe just a little drop here and a little drop here, but they are in every news cycle. You turn on the news right now, and I dare you not to come up with or to hear of some utterance of some one of these words or something similar. And so every day, you and I hear people saying that, I feel trapped in the body that God gave me. I feel dissatisfied with my gender because God gave me same-sex feelings and same-sex attractions. So rather than remaining trapped in this body like a prisoner, I am going to choose to transition to a gender other than the one that God assigned me to. They don't really stay there either. They, say, they go on to say this. Furthermore, I want God's blessing on the gender that I choose 
and you had better respect my, ident my identity as well. You hear some form of that argument out there today, every day. And here is a sad reality. Churches are also falling in line with this kind of thinking. In case you doubt me, here is a direct quote that I have on the board here, or on the screen behind me. I'm not going to name the church. But the person says, the so-and-so church prides itself in the acceptance of all people. Those of diverse cultures, ethnicity, race, gender identity, sexual identity, and abilities. This allows for congregations that share the wonderful uniqueness of each person, celebrate their varied differences, and promote stronger and richer missions through their shared ideas. Each culture brings with it an approach to worship that enriches the corporate celebration of the sacraments. Wonderful sounding words. But I want to tell you what God's word says. God's word says that God blessed mankind as he had made them. That God blessed them as male and female. It does not say that God blessed them as they would later choose to make themselves. I believe that that is important for all of us to remember, especially especially our teens and our young adults. You are growing up in a culture that is increasingly foreign to anything that you have learned at home, in Sunday school, in youth group, or in church. And if you don't commit yourselves to the truth of God's word, you will embrace and even defend what the culture is feeding you. I hope I'm not being prophetic when I say that, but I want to challenge you young people and young adults, accept the truth of God's word and don't fall for the lie that the culture is feeding you. I want to challenge you to, to make God's word your primary influencer, that the decisions that you make in your life are influenced primarily by scripture. Now, just for the record, this is not an anti-anybody message. This is not a message about homophobia. This is not a message about hating anybody. This is about revisiting God's foundational order for the purpose. I'm sorry, God's foundational order and purpose for the family. This is about heeding a very important injunction in God's word from the prophet Jeremiah, I'm sorry, the prophet Nehemiah. He gave this injunction to God's people. He implored them to do this. Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 14. He said to them, do not be afraid. In other words, the culture is going to make you afraid to choose and to decide. Do not be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. A direct word from scripture. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. I want to say to us now who are parents and grandparents, this, this is our fight. Right here. This is our fight. This is not a fight 
that we are going to fight through militant activism. This is not a fight that we are going to fight with the media or on talk shows or with the government. We fight this fight on our knees before God. We must be praying for our husbands, for our wives, for our siblings, for our children, for our grandchildren, fighting and praying that they will not pattern their lives after the lie that the world is feeding them, but patterning their lives after the truth of God's word. Are you willing to fight? Are you willing to fight? Finally, God blessed the distinctive purpose that he gave them as a family. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so from this verse, we recognize that God's purpose for the family was procreative as well as managerial. God wanted them to increase their numbers. He wanted males and females to unite in marriage, and through their physical union, they would produce children who would fill the earth with God's image. God's purpose for men and women is that they become godly, godly husbands and godly wives, that they will produce godly children through their union, and I can't emphasize it enough that this is still God's blueprint for the family. That a godly man marries a godly wife and raise, raises with her godly children to fill the earth with God's image and with God's glory. That is still God's purpose for the family. I believe as a bottom line that we all have a responsibility to ensure that the foundation of society, which is a family, that it remains strong. Here are three things that I want you to take away from this message this morning. First of all, I want to challenge you to have respect for the authority of God. Remember that we said earlier that there is a line of demarcation between the creator and the creature. I think all of us need to remember that God is God and we are not. God is the creator and we are mere creatures. The creature must respect the creator and it should not be the other way around. We shouldn't expect God to respect our choices. The creature must submit to the creator and it should not be the other way around. And the way that we submit to the creator is by acknowledging Jesus as the Son of God who gave his life to bring you as a son or daughter to glory. Here's a second takeaway. Build your family upon the foundation that God has established. Here now I'm going to be talking to the married, the parents, and grandparents. I believe that you must do everything in your power 
to build your family upon the solid foundation of prayer and God's word. You must not cease to disciple and pray for your children and grandchildren on a daily basis because they are growing up in a culture that is hostile to everything that you believe in. And this culture wants to brainwash them to become just like the culture so that you lose control and they lose their soul. Now here's a book I would absolutely recommend that all of us read. The book is by James Batterson and it is called Praying Circles Around, your Around the Lives of Your Children. I want to go ahead and just take one paragraph from it because I really believe that this is going to challenge you like nothing else. The author says this, you can circle anything in prayer, but nothing is more important to circle than your children. Drawing prayer circles is a metaphor that means to pray without ceasing. It's asking God until he answers. It's praying with more intensity, more tenacity. It's not just praying for, it is praying through. You know, there are times that we just pray for things, but sometimes we need to pray through obstacles and circumstances that are in our way until God hears and grants our request. There are times, he continues, when you have to grab onto the horns of the altar and pray until your knees are numb. We instinctively attach an ASAP, that is as soon as possible, to every prayer and ask God to answer that prayer as soon as possible. But we need a paradigm shift. We need to pray, we need to start praying, and he uses the acronym ALIT prayers, A-L-A-I-T, which means as long as it takes. That's what praying circles is all about. It is resolving in your heart of hearts that you will keep praying until the day that you die. End of quote. And then I want to draw your attention to to a verse that I didn't even, I've read through the Bible several times. I don't remember reading this verse before now. Lamentations, no wonder. This is the book of Lamentations, right? Lamentations chapter 2 and verse 19. This verse really just jumped off of the page at me. And believe me, I was talking with my son yesterday, our son. He lives in D.C., as many of you are aware, and I said to him, I've been praying for you. I wanted him to be aware of that. Because we pray for our children, both of our children, daily, daily, morning and night. But I've just sensed a need to step up the intensity of my prayers for both of our children. But this is what Lamentation chapter 2 and verse 19 says. It says, rise, in other words, get up out of your bed at night. Rise during the night. You know that sometimes at night you can't sleep? Best time to pray. He says, rise during the night and cry out. Pour out your hearts like water to the Lord. Lift up your hands to him in prayer. Doing what? Pleading. Pleading to God for your children. Here is where I sense this morning the need to ask us. Not gonna, I'm not going to... Um, 
seduce anybody, trick anybody, cajole anybody, guilt anybody. If you sense this morning that you need to be crying out to God for your children or grandchildren, I'm just going to ask you to stand where you are, come forward, and just let's cry out to the Lord for our children and our grandchildren. If there's a need, we will. If not, we'll move on. But I just want to give you the opportunity this morning for us to cry out to God for your children and grandchildren. Anyone this morning? Amen. 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 And even if you don't have children and not raising children and you want to join these in praying for them, please let's do that because the hour is dire. The enemy is after your children and my children your grandchildren, and my grandson. Let us pray together. Father, this is us as a church community coming before you this morning to plead with you, to cry out to you on behalf of our children and our grandchildren. God, we recognize the urgency of the hour. We recognize, Lord, the deception that is in the culture. We recognize how the enemy is trying his dead-level best to steal the hearts and souls of our children. But God, this morning we raise up a standard. Your word says that when the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. And we pray this morning that you would cover all of our children and our grandchildren with your blood. Let the enemy not be able to steal the hearts and souls of anyone this morning whose children and grandchildren are represented here. God, we ask you to protect them. We pray that you would give to our children and our grandchildren a new heart, put a new spirit, your own spirit within them, and move them to obey your laws and decrees. God, give us unusual wisdom. It requires wisdom to raise children and young adults in this age. And so we ask, God, that you would give to every parent and every grandparent the wisdom that they need so that we might influence our children for the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. Here's the last application point I will share with you this morning. I want to ask you to pray for someone who has been deceived by the enemy's lie. Pray for someone who has been deceived by the enemy's lie. I'm sure that you know of someone, maybe even people, who have allowed the devil to deceive them into a lifestyle that is dishonoring to God. Maybe they're in your family. Maybe they're in your neighborhood. Maybe you go to school with them. Maybe you work in an office with them. Now, you don't have to confront them about their lifestyle. That doesn't really work. That just creates a barrier between you and them. But you certainly can pray for them. You can pray for them. And they don't need to know that you're praying for them either. You can just be praying for them. You can pray that God removes the wool from their eyes so that they can finally see things more clearly. You can pray that God softens their heart so that it becomes receptive to the truth. You can pray that God would give you an opportunity to share with them the, uh, the reason for
for the hope that you have, that hope and that reason being Jesus Christ himself. So I want to challenge you to pray. Pray for those who have been deceived and caught in the enemy's lie. Let us pray together this morning. God, we humble ourselves and submit ourselves to the truth of your word. We ask, God, that you would give each of us the grace that we need to respond to your word in the ways that you want us to. We ask, God, that somehow you would allow us to take from this word some line, some image, some truth that will remain with us not only for the rest of this week, but the remainder of our lives. God, we ask that you would indeed help us to respond again by doing the things that you're calling us to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.